Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. We're calling 2019 the year of the Bible, and all year long we're reading through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and our Sunday sermons are coming from the weekly readings. If you'd like to join in, go to cornerstonetulsa.org, click on Year of the Bible. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Genesis 32, 22 through 32. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. And he, but he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Let's pray. Father, uh, as we read your word today and through the week, may we be receptive to the words that you have for us particularly. We ask that you soften our hearts, that you show us who you are, and may we be receptive this morning to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Thanks, Marilyn. Uh, Wow, what a crazy story uh, Marilyn just read. Um, As we uh, begin this year of the Bible and reading the Bible together, and we start in the Old Testament, uh, many of us that are are even like slightly familiar with the Bible know that when we open the Old Testament, we're going to like run across these stories that are just strange, mysterious stories, right? And the story of Jacob wrestling this man is a strange, mysterious story that at least on the surface, um, seems really bizarre and foreign. So like we read, we're like, I don't know what to do with this story. But I would argue that as we read this story and as we unpack it, as we begin to understand what's taking place, that as, as mysterious and bizarre as the story may be, uh, we will find it really familiar. I, I think this is maybe one of the most relatable stories in the Bible. Before we start unpacking it, I want to go back and just say, as we're reading the Bible together, uh, many of us are used to, uh, if or when we read the Bible, opening up to the New Testament. When we open to the New Testament, we're opening to these letters that were written to churches about what it means to behave, what it means to live out uh, the life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, what it means to live a life on the other side of recognizing God's grace and his forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that's what we're used to. But the majority of the Bible isn't written in letter format to churches that are instructional about how to live. 
Uh, most of the Bible uh, is, is written in narrative form, um, along with like some poetry and some wisdom literature in the Old Testament. But like 70% of the Bible is story. It's narrative. Um, and some of us aren't used to that. And so as we're reading through the Old Testament, um, there are going to be stories that, like, it's like, I don't know what to do with this, or why was this included in the story, which is always the right question to ask. And so I would just encourage you as we're reading narrative, uh, if you're, there's a part that you're like, I don't understand why this detail was included, it's good to ask, why was it included? Because it, it's purposeful. And you may not get the answer, but it's a good habit for us to just, like, begin doing. Why is this included? What am I supposed to learn about the story from this? 70% of the Bible is written in narrative form. And what's helpful for us is as we read the Bible from cover to cover, we're going to begin recognizing and our eyes are going to begin to be open to undercurrents that happen throughout the Bible that we miss when we read the Bible like a scripture or a passage at a time. And so at prayer on Thursday, we were gathered together praying, and uh, Cheryl Wood, who was here, uh, just shared one of the undercurrents that she began noticing as she was reading the narratives was that not only is God blessing Abraham and Isaac and what we call the people of God, but like these pagan nations and these pagan people are observing what's happening in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's life, and they're seeing that God is blessing them. And so there's a, there's a witness that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have just by being blessed by God to the people around them. And this is an undercurrent that we'll see uh, as we continue to read that as God blesses people, uh, other people recognize that blessing and recognize God's goodness and faithfulness. As we're reading the Bible, it's interesting because uh, this idea of narrative is really kind of how we understand the world, even today. And so uh, TV shows or books or even movies are all narratives. They're all telling stories. And as we hear these stories, we see ourselves in the stories. And it's interesting because in our day, most of the stories that we watch are stories about heroes. There's like this hero journey that people are walking on. And when we go watch stories, the characters that we identify with are characters that are experiencing some kind of tension in their lives that that eventually builds to like this conflict. And the conflict increases, 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 and increases until it hits this climactic point. And typically the climactic point in the story of the heroes that we celebrate is this place where the hero's done everything they know to do, everything that they've learned along the way, and it just isn't working. And so they have to like learn this new skill or they have to have this new realization or whatever in order that they might overcome this conflict that they're, uh, that they're engaging in. So it's tension and conflict and climax, and then we have this transformed character like who has this new ability, new skill, or new insight. But as we read the biblical story, as we pay attention, and we'll see this as we go through it over and over and over again, is that there's really no heroes in the Bible. Uh, certainly, we can look at Jesus, but other than that, there's really no heroes in the Bible. And so as we look at Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or eventually we're going to talk about David or even Peter and Paul and uh, all of these characters in the Bible, what we see are incredibly broken people, incredibly broken people. And what we are to see when we read these narratives are not like heroes that we are to emulate, 
but rather we're to see our own worst behavior on display. When we read the narratives of the Bible, the, the message that we're to walk away with is, okay, this is what it looks like to be human. This is what it looks like to be sinful human in desperate need of a savior. We're to look into these characters and see our own behavior, our own morality reflected back at us. And so there is tension and there is conflict and there is a climax to all of this, but it doesn't necessarily lead to like a completely transformed character. What it leads to is this rescue by a God who's faithful and gracious and forgives. And so as we look at these stories, uh, whether it be the story of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or even David, who like maybe gets the closest to being a hero, we will see eventually David screws up in like royal sorts of ways, right? And so the purpose of this is not that we're to look at the story of Jacob and look at Jacob's behavior and look at Jacob as someone that we are to emulate because Jacob is not the hero. And so as we're reading the Bible, as we're reading biblical narrative and we're recognizing that 70% of the Bible is written in this narrative form, and one of the things that we are to recognize as an undercurrent is that the Bible is not primarily about morality and how to live, but it's about what it means to be human, what it needs to be a human in need of a savior, what it means to live with an encounter of a God who's faithful and who's gracious and who's forgiving. Okay, so before we jump into Jacob's story, let's just give a little bit of background. In Genesis, we read that God creates Adam and Eve and sets them in the garden, sets them in a place of responsibility over the garden, and gives them some instructions. And everything's going well until Adam and Eve decide to kind of take matters into their own hands, not kind of, they do, take matters into their own hands and decide that they know better than God how things should go. And uh, they're wrong, and things go really bad. And things continue to spiral out of control until in Genesis chapter 12, God reaches out, God engages an encounter with a man named Abram. And God extends this promise to Abram. He says, Abram, I'm going to bless you. And you're going to be the father of many, many nations. And all of the nations are going to be blessed through you and your descendants. The promise made to Abram, uh, whose name gets changed to Abraham, is I will bless you and you are to be a blessing. And Abraham passes on this promise to his son Isaac, who carries that promise. The blessing is extended from Abraham to Isaac. And then this is where we come in the story, that we have Isaac. And Isaac uh, is going to have a son that he is going to, pl- that he is to pass the blessing on to as well. And so Isaac marries a woman named Rebecca, and Rebecca becomes pregnant. And in Rebecca's pregnancy, like she begins to recognize, I've never been pregnant before, but uh, she begins to recognize something crazy is going on uh, within her more than just being pregnant. So she begins calling out to God, God, what is going on like in my belly? And God responds and says, you're going to have twins. And from your womb, two nations Uh, will be born. Two nations will come. And uh, one of them, one of these nations, one of these boys will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now, in that culture, that's not the way things were supposed to go. The firstborn son of every family was given two things. Number one was the birthright, and number two was a blessing. 
And the birthright meant that the oldest son was going to get twice the inheritance of all of the other sons and was going to be in a place, a, a position of influence and power within the family, that they, they would be the authority in the family when the father passed away. Now, what's interesting about this is, uh, and this isn't talked about a lot at all, but the purpose of this, the purpose of the oldest son getting twice the inheritance in this place of influence and this place of position and this place of privilege was because that son was also responsible for taking care of the family. But as we read in the biblical story, that's, that's, rarely, uh, that's rarely how the oldest son kind of took this place. They, they had a tendency to take this position as a, as a position of, of power and of blessing and of privilege that was primarily just for them. And so, uh, so as these two are wrestling within her, uh, Esau is the firstborn of the twins. And Esau is described as red and hairy. And it's like, when we read that detail, what should we ask? Yeah, why is that in here, right? Well, Esau is described as red and hairy because Esau is like this strong man, right? And there's this like sense of redness and of rage and of like just drive and I mean, this is a passionate, Esau is a passionate person. Esau is going to grow up. He's like a man's man. Um, and he becomes his dad's favorite, Isaac. Isaac loves Esau. Esau's this hunter who's out in the field working and just a very uh, physical guy. Born immediately after Esau is Jacob. And the story tells us that Jacob is grasping at Esau's heel. And it's like, why, is, why are we told that? Well, we're told a little bit something about Jacob. Like, even as he's born, he's grasping at his brother's heel. He's reaching out and grabbing onto things. And Jacob's described as very smooth. And it's not just the physical smoothness that the Hebrew author wants us to hear, but Jacob's like this smooth talker, right? He's going to like talk his way into things and like kind of manipulate and deceive. And in fact, the name Jacob means deceiver. So we're told a lot about Esau and Jacob. Now, Jacob was loved by Rebekah. Rebekah loved Jacob more than he loved Esau. And so as you can imagine, for Jacob and Esau, they were already wrestling within Rebekah's womb, right? But now one of them's loved by the dad, one of them's loved by the mom, and the sibling rivalry just builds. And Jacob wants what he doesn't have. Throughout his life, Jacob wants what he doesn't have. And he knows that, I, that Esau was the firstborn, and he knows Esau uh, deserves the birthright, that Esau is going to get the birthright. But Jacob wants that because he sees it as a place of position. He sees it as a place of influence and power. And so Jacob decides, as Esau's out in the field working, Jacob has this bowl of stew, which is, I don't like stew, so it like even adds to the story for me. It's not like he's got pizza, right? He's got this bowl of stew. And Esau's out working, and Esau comes in from working. Remember, Esau's red and impulsive and like ready for action. And he comes in, and he sees this bowl of stew, and Esau's been out working hard, and he's so hungry, and he wants it so bad, right? And he's talking to his brother. He should know better because Jacob's like, his wheels are turning. Jacob's like, oh, I've got my brother. I've got him. So he tells Esau, you know what, Esau, I'll give you this bowl of stew if you'll give me your birthright, right? And we hear the story and it's like, 
Who would do that? Why would you do that? And yet, that's something we do all the time, don't we? It's that short-sightedness we live in. And so Esau says, sure, I'm hungry. I don't care. So Esau takes the bowl of stew and gives up his birthright. Jacob now carries the birthright. Well, I mentioned the birthright. There's also the blessing, right? And Rebecca loves Jacob more than she loves Esau. And she finds out Isaac is ready to give the blessing. And she knows that Esau is, that uh, Isaac is going to give the blessing to Esau because he was the firstborn. And so Rebecca pulls Jacob aside and says, hey, Jacob, let's get together. We're going to trick your brother and your dad into your dad giving you the blessing. And so that's what they do. You should read the story. It's a fascinating story. And so Isaac unknowingly extends the blessing to Jacob. And what we should remember in the context of this is it's not just like this arbitrary blessing that that Isaac is extending to Jacob. It's the blessing that Abraham, that God gave Abraham, that Abraham's now passed on to Isaac, that Isaac is now passing on to Jacob. And Isaac and Esau find out about this, and Esau's red, so what is his emotion in finding out about this? Oh my gosh, is everybody still asleep? Red, you guys have seen Inside Out, right? The red character, what's his emotion? Angry, yeah, Esau's angry and Isaac is angry and Esau says, I know the days of my mor- the days of mourning my father are coming. Esau knows that Isaac is about to die and he says, as soon as he does, I'm going to kill my brother. I'm so angry, I'm going to kill my brother. And if you knew Esau, you knew that was probably going to happen. And so Rebecca pulls Jacob aside because she wants to protect the one that she loves And she says, Jacob, your brother is going to kill you, so you have to leave home. So I'm going to send you to to spend some time with my brother, your uncle, Laban. And she says, what I want you to do is I want you to go spend some time with Laban. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. And then when your brother's no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, come on, Esau's not going to forget this, right? I'll send word to you, and then you can come back home. Jacob really has no choice. And so Jacob, like, sets off to his uncle's land. And it's fascinating because you think, as you think about this story, Jacob's been after stuff, right? He's been after blessing. He's been after the birthright. And he's gotten both of those, and he leaves home completely empty-handed. He has nothing. He leaves alone for all of his deception, for all of his wanting and needing and manipulating. He leaves with nothing. And in the midst of his fling, as he's on his way to his uncle Laban's place, God meets with Jacob. Jacob has this encounter with God. And in this encounter, God extends and reminds Jacob of the promises that were made to Abraham. And not only that, he extends those promises and blessings to Jacob. As he's running away by himself, he extends these things. And you know what Jacob's response to God is? Jacob decides to negotiate with God. God's extending all of these blessings, and Jacob decides to negotiate with him. This is how Jacob responds to these promises God has extended. He says, God, if you will be with me, if you will be with me, if you will watch over me and give me food to eat and clothes to wear, then the Lord will be my God. I read this and I think, ah, I relate too much to Jacob. 
He's too familiar for me. As Jacob arrives at his father's land, before he even gets there, he encounters this young woman named Rachel, who he later finds out is his uncle's daughter. And he falls almost immediately in love or in lust with Rachel. And so as he approaches uh, his uncle's place, he says, I, I met your daughter, Rachel, your younger daughter, because Laban has two daughters, one named Leah, uh, who's described as being weak-eyed, which simply means that she wasn't beautiful, and Rachel, who is just radiant, radiantly beautiful. And so Jacob encounters Laban and says, says Laban, I, I'm in love with your daughter, Rachel. I will work for seven years for your daughter, Rachel. Now, seven years is way more time than what was custom, what was customary. Jacob is like infatuated with Rachel. He wants her so bad, bad enough that he's going to work way more than he has to. And so Laban says, that sounds great. If you work for me for seven years, you can have my daughter. Doesn't name the name Rachel. You can have my daughter in marriage. And so Jacob works for seven years. And another insight into Jacob's makeup, Jacob approaches Laban and says, I've worked for you seven years. Just give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to make love to her. And I read that, and I think, oh, Jacob's such a romantic, right? <laughs> and so Laban says, okay, you've worked for seven years. And so, uh, so Laban throws this huge party and uh, essentially gets Jacob drunk. And as Jacob's drunk, he he goes to the marriage bed, and as he's doing that, Laban sneaks Leah, his older daughter, into bed with Jacob. And Jacob sleeps with her and then wakes up the next morning and realizes, oh my gosh, that's not Rachel, that's Leah. And so he goes to Laban, and he says, Laban, why have you deceived me? Right? Imagine the gall of this guy, right? Why have you deceived me? Jacob, whose name is Deceiver. Jacob's probably realizing that he's been out Jacobed, right? <laughs> and just in case we as readers don't catch the irony of what's going on, this is Laban's response to Jacob. Laban replies, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter and marriage before the older. Ouch, right? Laban's just like taking the knife into Jacob and twisted it. We don't do what you did to your brother, and to your father. Jacob's met his match, and so Jacob works another seven years in order to earn Rachel's hand in marriage, and Laban eventually extends it. Now, as I read this story, and as I read so many stories in the Bible, it's like we, we'll see how the story unravels for Jacob, but I'm like sitting there thinking, well, gosh, what about Leah, right? Leah's completely rejected, and seems to be forgotten, right? Certainly rejected by man. But the Bible tells us that when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. If nobody else is going to bless Leah, if nobody else is going to take care of Leah, God is going to. Leah was rejected, but God blesses her. Now, what's interesting about this is Leah conceives and she has a firstborn son and she gives that firstborn son a name that means surely my husband will leave will love me now surely my husband will love me now she's like there's still this emptiness this hole in her heart 
And so God allows her to have a second kid and then a third kid. And the third kid, she gives a name that means, surely my husband will become attached to me. She's longing for Jacob to desire her until she has a fourth kid. And the fourth kid, she gives the fourth kid the name Judah, which means this time I will praise the Lord. She comes to a place where God becomes the object of her affection. Well, God lives with Laban for, with Laban for quite some time. And then, uh, I'm sorry, Jacob lives with Laban for quite some time. And then God comes to Laban and says, uh, comes to Jacob, I'm sorry, and says, Jacob, it's time to go home. And so Jacob gets Rachel and Leah and all of his kids gathered together and sets off to make his way home. But Jacob knows that home is where Esau is. And Jacob knows Esau likely hasn't forgotten what I've done to him. And so as Jacob begins journeying home, he sends part of his crew ahead of him to go out and kind of scout how Esau's feeling. Like, why don't you guys go ahead of me, kind of get a feel for where Esau is and come back and let me know. And so that group that he sends ahead comes comes back to Jacob. Jacob says, hey, how's Esau doing? Like, are we okay? And they tell Esau, they tell Jacob, Esau's coming to meet you, right? And Jacob then is met with fear and distress. And as he's met with fear and distress, Jacob sits down and he prays to God that God would deliver him. And it's fascinating because in this prayer, Jacob lists off all the things that God has done for him. He lists off, lists off all the ways that God has already blessed him, but he's, he's saying, God, deliver me. But Jacob isn't well enough off to trust God, right? Jacob still wants to have control. And so Jacob devises this plan. Jacob devises this scheme because that's who he is and that's what he does. And so he gathers a group of people and he says, you know what, I'm going to take like a good portion of my herd and I'm going to send them with you. And I want you to like kind of meet Esau like at different signposts along the way and give him some of my stuff to kind of appease Esau. Like hopefully that will maybe soften him or rectify what I've done for him. And that leads us up to the story that we heard Marilyn just read. Jacob knows that he is going to meet with Esau the following day. And so Jacob is at this river, the Jabbok River. And it's interesting because what the scripture tells us is that Jacob is alone, right? Everybody else has already crossed the river. And not only that, but all of his possessions as well. Jacob is alone and it is at night. I don't know if any of you have ever had that experience where you felt utterly alone and it's like just in darkness. This is like a dark night of the soul. As we read the story, the author wants us to know Jacob's at the end of his rope. And in this dark night of the soul, Jacob encounters this man. It's this, it is a mysterious story. And it begins wrestling with this man from the time the sun goes down until just about daybreak. And right before daybreak, this man that, that Jacob has not been able to overcome has also not overcome Jacob. But this man, like, touches Jacob. And in the Hebrew or the Jewish, like, this word touch means he lightly brushed Jacob. And Jacob's hip is crushed, almost to the point of not being able to walk. It's this display of power of the man that Jacob has been wrestling. And in this display of power, 
Jacob realizes that this isn't a man that he's been wrestling, that it's God himself. And in this realization, when, when God touches Jacob on the hip, Jacob like changes his posture from wrestling with this man to holding on to him tightly and begging for a blessing. Jacob realizes that this is God and, and that God is who he has been searching for, who he's been chasing after. It's that void that is going to fill his heart and he holds on tightly to him. And what we're told is it's just about daybreak. And what we know from Hebrew scripture is that anybody that sees God face to face in the daylight will immediately die. And so Jacob's holding on tightly to God knowing that death might be the consequence because God and his blessing matters to him more than life itself. And so in this change of focus for Jacob, God changes his name from Jacob, which means deceiver. Like your identity is no longer deceiver. Changes his name to Israel. And Israel means like struggles with God and ultimately overcomes not only is his name changed, but God extends a blessing to Jacob as well. Gives him the very thing that Jacob has been longing for his entire life. I don't know about you, but like I said, there's certain stories in the Bible that like, I wish I understood better. And then there's other stories in the Bible that I understand all too well. And Jacob's story is one of those that I understand all too well, where I am pursuing all kinds of things to fill that void in my heart. Jacob spent his entire life wrestling with God, thinking he was wrestling with Esau or with Laban or with all of these external situations. What we're to read in this as we read this narrative is to recognize that the real conflict and struggle that we find ourselves in is never external. It's always internal. And any struggle that we have that's on the external always begins. It's a symptom of this internal struggle that all of us have. I read the story of Jacob, and because I relate to it so well, I'm heartbroken for Jacob. Like, as difficult as it is to like or love Jacob, I, like, I identify with him. And I, th I think, why must Jacob reach this point of suffering and surrender to receive his blessing? It, just, it breaks my heart. And I think it's because I know that's true in my own life as well. That when I'm at my most comfortable there's not salvation taking place because I become self-reliant, right? It's in the trials and the tribulations and the suffering that I begin to recognize my need for God and then begin to experience salvation, which makes me wonder, as much as I hate to wonder this, what if God doesn't rescue us from suffering but rescues us through suffering? And again, I think this is one of the undercurrents throughout the Bible. It's through trial and tribulation that salvation springs forth. And a lot of times this involves our own suffering, that, that God has to wrestle us into salvation, not comfort us into salvation. And yet I cry out all the time, God, comfort me, comfort me, comfort me. But God knows that I'm not gonna give up my old self as long as I'm comfortable. It's going through trials and struggles and even suffering that I move from my old self and begin to be awakened to my new self, the recognition that I am utterly reliant of God. And it's not only our own suffering that, that brings forth salvation, but God's suffering as well. 
And I think this is where we can find some comfort even as we go through trials. God is wrestling Jacob, and it says that God couldn't overcome Jacob. And I think that speaks way more to Jacob's stubbornness than it does to God's strength, right? Because God at any time could crush Jacob. And that's evidenced when God just like lightly brushes Jacob's hip and it's crushed. God chooses to make himself weak. God chooses defeat in order that he might win. And in the story of Jacob, what he gets is he gets Jacob's renewed and transformed heart. We see this with Jesus as well, right? Jesus is obedient to death, even death on the cross, not because death has power over Jesus, because Jesus desires to bless us. And so Jesus takes on the curse that we deserve, even though he deserved blessing, so that we might get the blessing that was rightfully his. Timothy Keller puts it this way. He who deserves curse gets blessing, which is us. We deserve curse, but we get blessing because he who deserved blessing was cursed. And even though we know that, like Jacob, we continue to wrestle and struggle for blessing. Like Jacob, we negotiate with God. We think if I just had this thing or if I just had that person or if I could just get there, And we find in the midst of this that it doesn't matter what I do or how hard I work, I can't make it happen and I feel unworthy. And for some of you this morning, that's your story. I'm working as hard as I can and I just can't make it work and I feel unworthy. Or for some of us, this is our story. It doesn't matter how good I am, how hard I try, how good I am, I still feel like a screw up. Or it doesn't matter how much fun I have or how much I indulge, I still feel empty. Or it doesn't matter how much knowledge and wisdom and information I gain, I still can't figure this all out. It doesn't matter how much focus I give it, ultimately I recognize I'm still out of control. It doesn't matter how hard I work for the benefit of others, I still feel unloved and alone. And for some of you, this is your story. It doesn't matter how hard I try to be my own person, I still feel invisible. And we're crying out in these multitude of ways, bless me, bless me, bless me, somebody bless me. And our heavenly fathers waiting patiently for us to wear ourselves out. Our Heavenly Father is waiting patiently for us to come to the end of ourselves. And then he responds, are you done? You worn yourself out? You're already blessed. I've intended to bless you from the very beginning. Let me. Relax. Be still and know that I'm God. Yeah, God, I know, but... I haven't quite earned it yet. Like, I'm not worthy yet. Or, God, like, you know what I've done. You know my past. You know how I've been deceptive and I've manipulated and I've done all of these things and we're still wrestling. And Jesus replies to us, this is my body that's already been broken for you. 
Be still. It's already been done. Jacob tried to trick his way into blessing. He tried to work his way into blessing. He even negotiated with God, help me get the blessing. Help me get there. Until he comes to this point in his wrestling where he realizes that God himself is the blessing. And he stops fighting him. And he holds on tightly to God. And he has this transformation, at least momentarily, from wrestling with God for a blessing to resting in God because he is the blessing. And that's our invitation this morning is to hold on to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the story of Jacob. God, I thank you that you meet Jacob right where he is. And in the wrestling, you don't shame him. You don't bring up every mistake he's made in the past. God, you extend blessing to him. And so as we gather at your table, may we remember that at great cost, God, you intend to extend blessing to us. Lord, give us the strength to relax. Give us the strength to let go of our own struggles, of our own just working our way towards things, to let go of those things and to hold on to you. We ask that you'd meet us here this morning.